Well, welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right. It's me, and we've been listening to some acoustic music by a gentleman by the name of Jason Shaw. He owns a company called Audio Nautics. That's A-D-I-O-N-A-U-T-I-X.com. It's royalty-free music, and I'm so glad that he puts it out there so I can use it. And I donate. So if you're interested in doing some podcasts or something where you need music, you can go to Jason Shaw. But what is really important is the gentleman I have on the telephone with me today. He's a friend of mine who I rarely get to see these days, and I look forward to seeing him again soon. He's a graduate of the Frederick Coffee Company and Cafe Open Mic Series, among other things. Frank Davis is on the line. Frank, how are you? Hey, I'm well, Todd. Thanks for Thanks for having me on your uh, podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. It, it has been too long. We've tried, and I'm glad we got together today. Well, I'm looking at two photos that I took, one of which is when you played at Brewer's Alley, and you're you're sitting on the chair, and, and you're backlit by the spotlight that uh, Rod DC had that was so bright sometimes you couldn't see it. Your eyes watered. And off your right shoulder is Tommy 1M Wright playing percussion. But the other photo is one of the last times, I think, that I saw you in person, which was probably two or three years ago. And that is at um, right across the street from the Frederick Coffee Company and Cafe on the corner with you and Bobby Flurry playing for First Saturday. And it's a shot of both of you smiling towards me, and it's a great photo. Oh, my. Yes, I, it has been too long, Todd, I, and it has been too long. I, and I truly uh, I appreciate the way you said a graduate of the Frederick Coffee Company. Uh, I certainly feel like I have alumni back there that I miss terribly, and I can remember good old days of mixing it about with everybody, you know, uh, playing with, with people that you never played with before, and it was all so good. It was. It, it, a, it was. And we were chatting, Carol and I were chatting about it recently, and then I was also talking with another musician friend of mine. And but all of us agreed that there was something special about that. And, you know, music is music wherever it's played. But there was something special about the group of people, the core group of people who came out to the open mic. It was like family. And yes, I, it was. I was just talking to Fran Tucker about that two weeks ago. And she was one of the folks that was there you Absolutely. Know, back in the day. Yep. And uh, it, there were so many great, great, great talents there. And uh, it was overwhelmingly talented. It was, it was incredible. And it was a wide range. It was quite diverse. Yes. It was quite diverse. Yeah, and what was so much, one of the things that was so much fun was you got the old guard like you and I, but you also got a lot of the high school kids and the, the, the performers who were just starting out. Maybe they'd only been playing their instrument for six months, and they were out there learning how to uh, perform on stage. So well, such fun. That was the beauty of the, uh, of the coffee company, is that there was such a wide variety. And uh, we just played back and waited to the last to play because, you know, we let the kids get up first. They had to go to school the next day anyway. They did. <laughs> <laughs> but indeed, it was uh, it was proving ground for everybody, though. We were all equal. Yes, absolutely. You know, we were all absolutely equal, and I think that was the, and it was the family environment, the friendly family environment there. You know, you it's a moment in time. And yes. I can remember saying you have to appreciate it now because it isn't going to last. And surely it did change because we had... Uh, Bill and, uh, oh, shucks, um, the original people. Um, yeah, Bill Hanger, who ended up going up to upstate New York. No, I was York. trying to say the owners, the owners. Oh, yeah, Maggie, Bill and Maggie. Bill and Maggie Brown. Yep. And, and then it went over to uh, to Mike, and, uh, you know, so everything changes. It does. But, uh, you know, I was... Certainly, you, you I, brought up Bill Hanger, and that's somebody that uh, that uh, Fran and I were talking about, and... Uh, and uh, Don Olson. Yes. And there, was, there was quite a few uh, very, very, very good, talented musicians there. Now, I have and not... Robert Barrera. Let's not forget Robert. Oh, absolutely. Now, have you heard from or heard of Bill Hanger recently or in the last couple of three uh, years? No. Once he got up to New York, we kind of lost uh, yeah. kind of lost touch. And Bobby and I were playing down on, uh, I don't know what it was called, First Saturday or something mm -hmm. on Market Street, Frederick, and it was... Uh, it was an experiment to try the upper end of Market Street, and we were way, 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 way out of town. And uh, Bill, Bill stopped by and saw us up there, and that's been, shoot, five years at least. Yeah, I would say. 
been a long time. Been a long time. We well, haven't we haven't played with uh, we haven't played on Market Street for quite a while. Yeah, well, nobody has actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. I wonder, and and you know, I know people that are uh, you know high paid musicians, and and I've talked to somebody from New York just recently, and said, you know, even the folks that are playing music for the plays. Uh, there's so many unemployed musicians in New York City. It's incredible. Oh, I imagine. I feel I feel badly for anyone whose income derived from a source where they can no longer utilize it. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And there's an awful lot of people like that. It's unfortunate. Yep. And we Hopefully can just we'll get through this soon. I'm I'm hoping that the soon is in all all upper caps. Yes. Yes, now, yes, yes. We're now, trying to just deal with getting uh, outdoor accommodations during the wintertime. Oh, absolutely. And, now, and using saying, the word uh, up, upper caps, the upper, because you, you're based out of the Harpers Ferry, West Virginia area, and you refer to your where you live as on the mountain. Yes, sir. Now, it's not to, to pinpoint where you actually live so people will you know ride by the house but i'm assuming that when you drive when you go over the first bridge from the brunswick maryland area you go over the first bridge you pass the gas station on the left and before you get to the second bridge there's that road that goes steeply up to the left is that you got it that's the area up in there yep yes certainly it is and it goes uh and interestingly enough when it gets to the top of the mountain that road parallels the appalachian trail which also parallels the the uh, border between West Virginia and Virginia right there. Ah. And it's uh, it's uh, the top of the mountain, as it were, and there's several developments up here. And the place where I live was established in the early 60s by they were trying to make summer resort cottages uh, to attract the city people to come up here and uh, get property on the river. Ah. And that's the, that's the development where I am, and that's basically how it got started. And you I ha- don't exactly live in a cottage, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and you. But that al- was that was the impetus when it started in the early sixties. Well, you also, uh, from what I understand, have four-legged neighbors. Oh yeah, yeah. It's the woods. Yeah. I mean, I, I live. I definitely, you know, live in a zoo. It's uh, a lot of critters up here, and you have to deal with that accordingly. You have to be careful with your trash, and I had to stop feeding birds because we have. We have bears quite frequently, and uh, all the other kind of wood, woodland creatures come by the house. <laughs> oh, terrific. So it's, uh, it's definitely on a dirt road, and you couldn't drive past here by chance if you wanted to. I, uh, <laughs> I think Bobby now knows how to get here, yeah. <laughs> and we've been friends for quite a long time. But uh, no, it's it's out of the way. Now, so, did... And it's my retreat. It's my sanctuary. Oh, I bet. Now, did you grow up in that area? Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. Waynesboro, okay. Yeah, and uh, graduated, I guess, in the early 70s and 72, and uh, left left for Horizon Jet Unseen, and uh, go back occasionally to this family that's still there. But uh, um, I have lived in this house for 33 years. Wow. And uh, previously I lived in Thermont. Okay. My connection to Frederick was the Maryland School for the Deaf. Now, now, why was that? Because I worked in the field of deafness all my career. I did not know that. Yes, I was a counselor for the. I ran the dormitory program in the high school department, and uh, then eventually I ran uh, group homes for chronically mentally ill hearing impaired adults in uh, Montgomery County. But my entire career, till I uh, had to leave, was. Uh, focused on hearing impaired folks. So you're very, you must be proficient in sign language. I'm an interpreter, yeah. Plus, yeah, proficient, for sure. Wow. Kudos to but you. During those, but during those times, there wasn't a whole lot of guitar playing. You know, we, we'd take the Boy Scouts out camping trips, and there was no kumbaya around the campfire. Right. So, you know, I kind of got away from the guitar playing until the late 90s. Well, how did you start musically? Go all the way back. How did... did I'm going... Mom's saying, "Hey, there's a there's a choir for for you now that you're old enough to be in the junior choir. Go on, join the choir." And that led to joining the choir in high school. And uh, Waynesboro had a particularly unique program there. They had a group called the Tribesmen. It was an all male glee club, 
it was the only one around. And uh, we traveled all over the state of Pennsylvania performing. And uh, that was absolutely a great musical experience. Our musical uh, coordinator was uh, was very energetic, and he ran us through some paces. Uh, a, just incredible um, musical experience for being 15, 16 years old. And uh, that was the first record I was on. We cut a record. Did you really? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, but uh, now what performed was up at the Capitol in, in in Harrisburg and down in Philadelphia, and but it was uh, it was a male glee club, and that was pretty much unheard of. Any, I mean, did you have one in your high school? Not at my high school. We did it college for two years. Okay, okay. And the uh, and that was a whole lot of fun. But I don't read music, so I had to get really quick at split second timing to sing the same note everyone else was. <laughs> So. But then, no, I guess that's and the uh, the uh, the drama department would put on what they called the all school production. You didn't have to be uh, any particular class rank; anybody could try out for it. But there was always uh, a choreography and music in the background, and so I always got into the into the background sequences with uh, being in the choir and doing the choreography for. We did Fiddler on the Roof and all, all kind of. All kind of fun stuff. Now, what vocal range were you then? Were you a baritone. tenor, a baritone? Baritone, yeah, yeah. My claim to fame was the bottle dance and Fiddler on the Roof. Three of us <laughs> did the uh, did the bottle dance, and uh, I, I, we, we got such an ovation. I think that stuck with me at the early age, and I said, I like this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is cool. This is really cool. And uh, eventually, I was playing guitar in front of the tribesmen. My first, my first guitar piece in front of people with in front of the tribe was uh, "Good Old Mountain Dew." Really, the commercial. Yep. Well, I don't know about the commercial, but that's the song we sang. Yeah. It was, uh, it was um, well, that was part of the repertoire, and uh, the director said we need a guitar player, and now, it was tried out, and I got it. Now, how had you started playing guitar? I guess uh, I was a teenager, and uh, Mom got me a guitar from Western Auto, an airline guitar. I think it cost 25 bucks. And uh, my neighbor came down and tuned it for me and uh, put that 45 record on, and I learned how to play Red River Valley. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you had that same record or not, Todd, but, <laughs> you know, it came with the guitar. And again, I think it cost 25 bucks, but... Uh, it stuck with me, and of course, I'd watch all these people on TV, and eventually I got a better one. I got to Sears, and I got a Silvertone, and uh, then uh, then I actually became a lifeguard, got a real job, and bought my first Gibson, and uh, took all the money from an entire summer's work, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that was, uh, the guitar was hooked into me by, by that age. By, by the time I was 16, I was, it, was, it was part of me. Now, was the Gibson an electric or, or an acoustic? No, 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 acoustic. It was, uh, they probably, probably never heard of it. It was a real skinny neck compared to most Gibsons who famously have a much wider neck. But he, it was a B125. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember those. You do? You yeah. remember that? Okay. Yep. Interestingly enough, Bobby had one as well, but I didn't, I didn't think anybody had ever heard of that. But it had a it had a neck that fit my hand. I remember being at Chuck Levin's and playing everything I could. Because if I was going to spend all this money, I wanted to touch every guitar in the store. <laughs> <laughs> and as you as you obviously have seen from my later purchases, it was a it was a, you know that was the first of many times of doing things like that. Now, um, do, do you still have that particular Gibson? Oh gosh, I wish. Yeah. No. No, no, no. There's a lot of guitars that have gotten away from me between that time and now. <laughs> it's like the 67 Mustang I wish I still had. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I was behind, I don't know if it was a 67, but it was darn close, all renovated. Uh, gosh, sometime during the summer, I was driving through downtown Frederick, and some fellow, you know, convertible, had, the, uh, had his hat on and stuff, and the car... You know, in comparison to today's hot cars, they look they look very simple. But at the time, that was a groundbreaking groundbreaking design. Oh, yeah. 
We loved it. We loved it. I was, uh, you know, there was a there were the Corvette people, but I was a Mustang person from 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 day one. <laughs> so list some and of I, the. I have one now. I have one now. Yeah, but it looks a lot different than the '67, doesn't it? Surely it does. Surely it does. What color is it? It's black. Yeah. It's the fifty. It's the fiftieth anniversary edition. But uh, no, I have a lot of fun with it, and it's uh, it's. Uh, uh, it's my toy. <laughs> yeah. Now, going back to guitars, what are some of the guitars that you have owned in the past that you let go that you wish you had never let go besides the V125? I had a Gibson Madeira electric. It was a Japanese-made Gibson. It was called Madeira. And it looked, it was a style of a Gibson SG with the, with the double cutaways like the SG. And it had, it was just a gorgeous guitar. It was, uh, it was my first, uh, it was a guitar that I played in my first electric bands, and uh, just just loved that guitar. And then there was the, my first Martin. It was a D35 that I that I uh, you know first 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 one I had my hands on. And uh, again, I wish I had that because that was an old one too. I I forget what year that was, but um, yeah, some sometimes these things slip through your fingers and. Uh, you know, they find another home, but uh, I have I have a collection now that's keeping me busy. Fact, well, you, you know, I might even be time to weed the collection out, Todd. I mean, you can't play them all at the same time, if you know what I'm saying. I do. I say that every day, and and I mention it to Carol. She goes, Todd, I don't even notice that you have this wall of guitars, but you know, and I love all of them for different reasons. But there are some that I just don't play. And I keep thinking, I've got to sell those. And I get them out, and I start to play it, and I go, well, not just yet. Or it writes a song for you. You know, I'm going to get to, I'm going to get rid of this because I haven't done anything, and I'm not writing anymore. And the next thing you know, you're playing chords that you haven't played because you haven't played this guitar in so long. And it, I have a Hudson Dalton that's like that. It writes songs for me. And it's, you know, that's the one that I play the least, and it's the first one I think about selling. But every time I get it out of the case... Something new comes off the neck. I mean, it's just, you know what I'm talking about. You write a whole lot more than I do. Well, and, and I uh, remember that guitar because you brought that to one of the events at the coffee company, I think, uh, yeah, right I after did. you I, had purchased it. Yeah, I, I sure did, and I bookered up the top of it that night, too. Oh. And I, haven't used, I haven't used finger picks on that guitar since. But I recall yeah. it sounding glorious. Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful guitar. Yeah, it's... I went to uh, that famous guitar store in Washington, D.C. on Connecticut Avenue. Uh, What's it called? Washington Guitar or Washington Music. Mm -hmm. They sell guitars to the Congress people and all that. So they've been there. They've been there since Beethoven. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I went down there and bought a six-string banjo that had custom-made from Deering. And when I was there, I told the guy, I said, talk me out of a D45. I'm going to buy a Martin. He said, talk me out of it. And... Uh, Next day, I took the credit card back, and uh, and I had to hustle and talk. It didn't stop me from getting a D forty five eventually, <laughs> <laughs> but but no, I uh, I, I it, and they're all like children. I hate to get rid of any of them. Now what? Yeah. It's like we're having in this conversation. Oh, I wish I had the D thirty five. Why would I play it out now? Mm. No, but I wish I had it. Yeah. Now, what was it about the Hudson Dalton that just captured you? Oh, it has a real nice, deep, deep resonating uh, sound to it, and it's a it's a different style body than the Martins. I played Dreadnoughts mostly, and it's more like an OM uh, body. It's more like the Snowman body. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you got the difference in the resonation there, but the woods, the woods that that they used on this guitar are just incredibly resilient or uh, responsive. Now I don't remember what it's made from, woods wise. Oh, it's 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 your basic Sitka, Sitka and uh, and uh, rosewood. Yeah. I mean it's 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 similar to to the way I got my Martins, but uh, um, the top is uh, it's got the bent neck headstock, the slotted headstock. Oh yeah, yeah. And and that's another thing I found that the two times I play guitars that have that odd type of headstock they, they sound different than other guitars they really do and uh the challenge changing the strings i'd much prefer <laughs> not to do that 
but uh, I think they all sound different and, uh, than than your typical headstock on a Martin or Gibson or Taylor or whatever. Now, what but, guitar uh, is your go-to guitar that you pick up most of the the time? All, all the time, without fail, the D forty-five Martin. Yeah. Now, is yeah, that I had I had electronics put in it, so uh, they they call it a D forty-five E because it came with electronics. I didn't have to have Marty or or somebody add them to, which is what I did to the forty-one. I, I have a D forty-one as well, but. Uh, I had the luthier put the electronics in afterwards. And, right. Uh, so it comes out of the factory with something other than what their standard is. They had to put a different nomenclature to it. So I guess mine's a, technically a D45E. Gotcha. Now, is that the, the Martin that you had an unfortunate accident at one point in time? No, that was the 41. Was the 41. I remember you... Yeah, and I remember you getting on stage and it more than likely was the, the open mic. And you said, you know, Todd, would you believe that a week ago, this guitar, the headstock had broken off? Oh, that was another accident. I've had two, two major accidents with really nice guitars. That was my cutaway. That was my custom cutaway. Okay. And I still use that now. I use that. That's my second guitar I play. I take two guitars to gigs, and uh, one of them I usually leave in open or, or strange, like David Crosby tunings. Mm-hmm. We, we do a lot of Crosby stills and Ash kind of things, and uh, it's just so easy not to have to try to get to those lower tunings and keep the guitar in tune for an entire song. You know what? You know what I'm saying. Oh, I know Dave. I do. That's why I always take two guitars to a gig. Yeah, so I still use that guitar. That was, uh, that was, uh, I guess, the late '90s. That was built in '98, I believe, and it was one of their first offerings in a cutaway design. And uh, it was a custom-built guitar, and it got kicked over on Market Street. In uh, what was the temperature? I think the temperature was 42 degrees that night. Oh. Yeah, it was one of the Christmas things yes. that uh, Slowburn did down in front of on Fourth Street on the corner of Fourth Street, and somebody's foot got tangled in, uh, in 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 something, and the guitar went down and cracked the headstock, and you can't tell it to this day. You have a hard time. You have to look for it to see it. Well, you showed it to me that day, and you had to point out the repair because I couldn't see it. If you need repairs, let me throw his name out there. Martin Fair. Yep. Marty Fair. Fair built guitars. He's a magnificent luthier, and he's Martin certified. Yeah. No, he's he's my go-to guy. In fact, he has my brother's 1966 Guild right at the moment, having a neck oh. reset done on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know he went out. They, they weren't working for a while, and right. I just took a friend's guitar over to him couple weeks ago i'm so glad he's back more active <laughs> we all had to go underground for a while i'm glad he's back oh a- absolutely absolutely now the uh, what were your thoughts what was going through your mind when the guitar went down and the headstock broke i i, I was dumbfounded i was just literally i i didn't know what to say but i was such a rookie back in those days I always carried two guitars. Mm-hmm. So, dum de dum de dum just went over to the truck, got out the other guitar, and came back, and we played the gig. It is so, a... Mi- go ahead, I'm sorry. No, it was... It was. What do you do? Um, thank God I have another guitar. Yeah. So, let's not dwell on this. Uh, we'll deal with that later. And I thought it was shot. I thought it was, you know, you don't break the headstock off a guitar. And, uh, you know... I never thought about having the neck replaced. I wouldn't think the guitar. I think I would rather put money into a new guitar rather than the the expense of putting another neck on a Martin. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I just that's the way I would have thought about it. And uh, Marty looked at it like, oh no, we do this all the time. Yeah, he meant because after that happened to you, the next time I went over to his shop, I mentioned that to him, and I said. Gosh, that must be just a brutal repair job. He goes, no, it's one of the easiest ones there is. I said, really? And he says, usually they break so cleanly. As long as someone hasn't messed with it, he says, we just 
put the glue there, put it back together, clamp it, and it's done. Yeah. And like you said, I was playing it a week later. You know, from the time he got it, it was so fast. I, it was just a real quick turnaround. But mm. uh, now I play that guitar on a regular, I play that every week, that guitar still. That's the one I put my special tunings on. And since it's a cutaway and you got it, well, just certain songs require, make that a little bit easier guitar to play with what we do. So when you play your gigs, like right now you're doing the, the Frank and Bob, or Bob and Frank, I think it's Frank and Bob. Yes, that's correct. Duo up at, um, what is it, uh, Reed's? Uh, Reed's Winery and uh, Reed's Wine Tasting Room in Cider House. It's in Gettysburg. Now, is that the one right there next to the ice cream shop? Yes, indeed it is. Yep. That's, uh, he's a good friend of ours. Yeah. Now, do you take your 45 and the 41, or the cutaway and the 45? Are I, they... I take the 45 and the cutaway yeah. to, to all my gigs. We play regularly over here in Harper's Ferry as well at the Anvil. And uh, if if we're going to be playing those songs, I always I always take the cutaway. And sometimes, uh, you know, we'll we'll change up the set list and think maybe it's a little bit too heavy on this kind of stuff. So we'll you know we'll try to change it up to some degree. But uh, generally, I have two guitars at the, at, for that reason because I like to keep one of them in a, in a different tuning. Sure. Now, when you play at the Anvil now, I'm assuming it's outdoors, but they have a tent, I think, don't they? They have a huge circus tent set up. Yeah. yeah. I uh, um, Fortunately, I've been playing there for a while, and it's really nice in the pub in the front. It's very close, very intimate, and it's one of my favorite places to play for that reason. But with the, with the quarantine and with the COVID and all that nonsense, uh, that is out of out of the question. So they have a big, uh, I don't know, what would you call it, a wedding tent? Mm -hmm. You know, like you did a wedding or we were teasingly calling it a circus tent. But uh, no, it, it covers their entire backyard area and uh, and their garden area. And they uh, were able to host a whole lot of people. I do know that um, there was talk about only having that facility until the end of October. And Everybody is scrambling, trying to figure out what they're going to do for the winter winter months. And there's a place that we play over here, the White Horse, uh, on top of the hill um, at the Clarion Inn. The White Horse is the tavern there on, in connection with that. And they have done uh, what the Anvil had done all, all summer long, and they're going to try to put space heaters in to continue having outdoor events whether it be on a sunday afternoon or saturday afternoon or if it's possible to even do their evening music at all mm -hmm. uh, depending on the temperatures nobody knows what to expect and that's right. exactly what they're doing in gettysburg they're they're putting up a tent they're going to put heaters in it and just to try to keep the music going that's one of the nice things about reeds is they over the years have developed and we've tried to nurture uh, a music reputation for that facility and uh, they're basically the only music place in town now for doing that kind of tasting and uh, for the cider and for the wine as well. There's a lot of wineries, but there's none quite like Reed's. Yep. <laughs> well, now I remember, well, when I first met you, you were more of a blues, acoustic blues player and not necessarily singing. And then you gradually kind of brought the singing into it. Um, the, and you attended, what's his name, Jorma, Yorma, how do you pronounce his name? Yorma Kalkinen. Yeah. Yorma Kalkinen from the Jefferson Airplane, and as well, people know him from Hot Tuna. Mm -hmm. He has a ranch in southeastern Ohio uh, called the Fur Peace Ranch. Is that what you were in, yes. uh, leading to? Yes. Yeah. Tell, tell, tell the folks and me, I'll remember it as you go along, but tell everyone what, why you went there and what, it, what it's for. I had recently purchased my, uh, my uh, gotten back into playing music in the late 90s again, and I was in the music store and saw in a magazine uh, different advertisements, and one was for this uh, music camp where you could go uh, learn, to, learn to play music with a guy that started the Jefferson Airplane. I thought, well, that's, that's a bunch of stuff. And I was never much for uh, taking lessons, and I had never done that into a friend challenged me and said, Frank, take it to the next level. You should play with somebody that's a whole lot better than you are and, and get some other tricks. And uh, that kind of stuck with me. So I decided, and my wife willingly said, oh, yeah, go check it out. 
the first time I went out there, I took was what they called pick and putt, P-U-T-T. So I put the Harley in the trailer and I drove six hours out to Ohio and uh, spent the weekend, met Yorma and Jack Cassidy and uh, some other infamous uh, rock and roll individuals that were there teaching classes from Friday until Monday. I took a class with Yorma and uh, in the off times when we weren't in class, we went riding uh, motorcycles through the, through the hills of southeast Ohio. Which was quite a treat. Uh, we had we had a real blast and uh, got to know people in a different sense of just the music. But quite an enjoyable weekend it was. And when I came home, my my wife said I was a changed person. When can you go back? <laughs> <laughs> and it's that kind of encouragement from my wife that uh, led me to go back there ten times. Wow. Uh, I, I've studied with. Uh, blues aficionados. I've studied with some of the names that you would know, some names you probably wouldn't know, but uh, got a taste in uh, Piedmont blues and uh, a little bit of touch in the Delta blues and um, the finger stylings that went with both of them. I, just, I, I had to decide one way or another which way I was going, and I put my Dolbro up for sale, and I went straight into the finger style. I had a nice uh, Gibson Dolbro, a hound dog. And I put that aside, and I went straight into the fingerstyle Piedmont stuff, and uh, it grew from there. And I think that uh, when I was first performing, I was trying to keep it simple. And I was doing instrumentals as opposed to singing. So I didn't have to do too much at one time to get used to playing in front of people. And uh, eventually, eventually the words came, and also the fact that we were playing with other people, that helped make it a little easier, too. There's nothing I respect more than the one-man band. It is so hard. Yes, it is. But uh, few people understand it, and few people do it well. There's a lot of imitators, but it's uh, an extraordinary hard talent. And uh, those that do it well have my utmost respect, like yourself, have my utmost respect, because it is it is a lot to do um, to cover all the bases. So that's what I fashioned myself to do. I wasn't going to count on anybody else. I didn't know anybody else to play with. So when I first started to play, I was doing mostly acoustic instrumentals and uh, looking for that bass player. I started out not realizing what all the talent that was around me. I was just looking for somebody to play bass with me. And, uh, well, you've seen the... Uh, the, the folks that I ended up playing with, mm -hmm. but uh, I played with Barry Bryan for for quite a while there in the early days, and uh, then Bill Hanger. And you know when you, I always fashioned myself to try to play with, as I said, people that are better than me. And I, I think that I always was able to do that in Frederick. There's always somebody better than me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, the folks that I played with were truly talented individuals. Uh, Bill Hanger was a country crooner. My God, the man should have been in Nashville. He had a beautiful he, voice. He, he, he should have been cutting records in Nashville. And, uh, and the, the troubadour, him, well, truly the troubadour, Mr. Durant. Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, yep. treasure, treasure the opportunities to play with him. But then the, uh, the other Pied Piper of, of Frederick was, was truly Robert Pereira. Mm -hmm. The man knew more songs than anybody. I mean, his mind was a, was a songbook. And he remembered, the, he remembered the verses nobody else knew. And, uh, and he had a tremendous voice, tremendous voice. And he was part I, of Slow I, I Burn with you, him. wasn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, well, it started with uh, Bill Robert and I. That's, uh, and Barry, and yep. Barry Bryan, too. Yeah, that's, that's the way it all started. And there was a few changes, you know, when Bill moved. And Wade was in the band for a while, too, before, uh, before uh, we moved on. But, no, I, uh, I appreciate the folks that I played with in Frederick. And like I like you were saying before, for the copy company, quite talented individuals, each in their own right. Well, I remember when Wade was with you, and you were at the coffee company, and it was not an open mic. It was I think you were performing that particular evening as the mainliners, and the three of you played Neil Young's "Harvest Moon," and I hadn't heard that song in a long time. And of course, that little riff in the beginning, which is so distinctive. And ever since then, I now can play it. I learned it last year, and I now can play it. But 
that has always, whenever I play that song, I think of you guys. Oh, what a compliment. I just added that back into our repertoire. We, uh, we got away from that one. And uh, for whatever reason, I have no idea. You know, it just, just happened. Yep. And uh, I, just, I just played it the last two weeks. It's a great, and, great uh, song. It really it's is a great song. I tell you, I had a hard time learning it. I had a hard time learning it. The one with the uh, you're talking about the one with the harmonics, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah, not good uh, at the harmonic stuff. I can do the right. other. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Keep at it. Keep at it. It'll come. Yeah. I, I every time I pick up the guitar, Todd, I learn something new. You know, it's 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 never something that's grown old. I'll never know it all. But uh, you always learn something new. I'm working on uh, an Eric Clapton song, and I'm trying to stretch my little finger two frets. And at my age, I don't know if I was ever at an age that my finger would have stretched two frets. But, uh, you know, that's my challenge. I'm, I'm going to get it. <laughs> I'm going to get it. It's just to play a seventh chord, but, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it. <laughs> well, I remember there was one instrumental that you used to do, and it's a well-known instrumental. I just don't recall the name of it where your third finger would have to go from, maybe you were in a D shape or something, and it would have to go up and hit maybe the fifth string, one fret above. I don't remember you, you know, doing finger style, but whenever you would do that, your ring on your ring finger, which is the finger was moving, would hit the fretboard. Nah, it, was a planned, it was a planned rhythm trick. Oh, okay, because I that. thought, you know, Gosh, that's yeah, what a great addition to the song, and he probably doesn't even have any idea that it's it doing no, it. No, no, it was a It took me years to figure it out. Ah, it's called Water Song. It's uh, when uh, when Jefferson Airplane years ago in the '60s was on the road, Yorman and Jack roomed together, and they would play acoustic music in the off hours. The show would only be 45 minutes to an hour back in those days, and a lot of their time was spent in hotel room. So Yorma was a a student of the Piedmont style and acoustic uh, numbers, and uh, there developed the foundation for what became known as Hot Tuna. Hot Tuna would open shows for the Jefferson Airplane, and it'd be two of their own people. It'd be the guitar player and uh, and the bass player were Hot Tuna. So uh, that's where that's where the acoustic stuff comes from. And the other song that you remember me playing all the time was from their first album. It's called Embryonic Journey. Yes, that's the one I played most of the time. But the one with the, the one with a neat little roll. It's it's on a bass front. Um, it do 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 do, and instead of uh, hitting the next note, you slap the back of your uh, neck with your ring. You should see the back of my forty-one. <laughs> it's got little dents everywhere. I'm serious. I'm serious. People would say, "Why? Well, you know, you shouldn't beat those guitars. Why? Well, you know, you play them." Guitars are meant to be played. They're, you know, I, I dread every nick that I have on a guitar, but I'm not going to keep them in the case. You know, I got them to play them. Yep. And uh, so uh, that 41 took a lot of abuse from uh, learning how to play that song. <laughs> well, you know, I know that you have played with uh, finger picks, um, and I'm sure you play with bare fingers sometimes too, but... Um, what do you use for finger picks? What brands do you find work I the best for you? Gold, I use Golden Gate um, thumb picks. Uh, are you familiar with the Golden Gate series? I am. Series? I am. I use Golden Gate thumb picks, and I use National uh, uh, banjo picks. Ah, metal now, banjo. What is the difference between a banjo pick and a guitar pick for fingers? Well, some people differentiate by the plastic versus the metal. Oh, gotcha. Uh, most all the banjo pickers use the metal picks, mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of your thumb pick, of course. Sure. But uh, a lot of guitar players will use that softer um, um, the plastic or whatever they make picks out of mm -hmm. for the two-finger picks. I, I have them. I've used them. Um, I just like the sound. I'm just used to the sound of the metal. Now, and did it take that. did it take you a long time to learn how to play with finger picks? It took me a long time to play what I was supposed to play. I could I could make noise with finger picks, but to play specifically what I wanted to play at the time when it was supposed to be played, yeah, it took a while. It, it took I yes, it took years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
It took years. I, I can make noise when I first started out, but to actually do that little three-note roll in between to song, in between phrases, or you know, uh, do a uh, do a little trill at the top on a, on a sustain. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how you did that, mm-hmm. and so you know, to try to to try to get the finger hitting the string that you wanted to at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it took a while. It still is something I work on to this day, and I think the uh, you know you get away from your guitar. Those are the first things that that you lose your muscle memory and uh, and uh, all those neat little tricks that you can do. But uh, you stay at it every day, and they come fresh, and it evolves. Mm-hmm. What you can do keeps evolving, and uh, so it's like I say: every time I try to play the guitar, something different happens, and. Uh, I'm, I'm, that's what keeps me going. <laughs> yeah. Now, did the 10 years with at Jormer's Camp, did that help you um, with the fingerings? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, interestingly enough, when I first got exposed to him and his class, he said, there's a lot of people that know a lot more than I do that could help you in doing whatever your goals are. And one of the first people to help change my way of thinking was Ernie Hawkins. Are you familiar with Ernie? I am. Mm-hmm. He's a musician out of Pittsburgh, and he's an extraordinarily gifted and talented individual who spent a lot of time with Reverend Gary Davis, and uh, is the most precise uh, duplication of the Reverend's fingerstyle guitar, which I'm sure you know Gary Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter, Paul, and Mary, everybody wanted to play like uh, Reverend, Reverend Davis did. But he... Uh, he was the first one that showed me exactly how Gary Davis was doing different things, and he says, you need to learn the entire neck of the guitar, and we're going to do that in 35 minutes. Whoa. And he showed me the cage system. Are you familiar with the cage system? I've heard the about AG. it, but I don't know what it is. Changed my life. Changed my life. 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Now, I still use it. I, part of my being i don't practice it like i did back then but it's uh it's essentially the map of the fretboard there's uh another phrase that people refer to as the nashville number system mm-hmm. you've heard of that i'm assuming oh yes it, yep. it's the same kind of thing it's the it's the map of the fretboard and uh when you begin to see the relationships and the connections it uh all kind of comes together a little bit. Now, is it difficult? And, and again, having that kind of instruction, I would have never gotten that at home. Yeah. So, absolutely. It changed my, well, my wife said it changed my life. Yeah. And she said I'd come home from these, these sessions so invigorated, and uh, and she said I could hear the difference in your guitar playing immediately. But uh, when you have somebody that's talented like that that can show you Oh, no, this is an anchor finger. You put this finger down and you anchor all your other stuff around. This finger never moves. Hmm. Uh, You move these fingers. And uh, all of a sudden, you have a rift. You have a lick. You have a way to go from C to G that you never saw before. And it's, well, you know, like I said, uh, somebody had to show me that. And once, once I grabbed a hold of it, you know, the sky was the limit. And then again, finger style you asked about, um, Pete Huttlinger um, was a um, finger style champion for, I think it was three years before he backed out, mm-hmm. um, which is where John Denver picked up on him. And he was uh, John Denver's multi-instrumental um, player for, I don't know, five, six years until John passed away but uh pete taught me a lot about uh, dad gad tunings mm-hmm. and uh, alternative uh, alternate tunings and uh and uh, a different way of finger style picking because he said you guys up here are doing all this piedmont stuff <laughs> you got to get away from that alternate bass doop 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 stuff he said you got you got to try to do things a little differently and uh so again, once I learn something, then there's somebody else to teach me a whole new way of doing it in a way I hadn't thought about too. So uh, yes, the 
the individuals I got to play with and, and, and who would show you uh, different styles, different tricks, different, different ways to do the same old thing, uh, it was very influential, uh, very influential, worth every penny I spent, and I highly recommend it to anybody that was serious about I mean, these, these people are serious. This isn't go get your picture taken with, uh, with uh, a rock star. This is serious music camp. This is, uh, um, well, there's classes as soon as you get there, basically, and all day Friday and, uh, or all evening Friday and all day Saturday and uh, Sunday. The students actually have a performance in the afternoon. And, uh, and then there are sessions on Sunday evening and even up to Monday at lunchtime. So it's uh, as much as you're willing to, to absorb, it's, it's there and available. So yeah, I. Uh, um, Is it a nerve-wracking experience in the beginning? I was just amazed at how much information was being thrown my way. Yeah, it's like a, it's like going into chemistry class the first day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. It, eventually, it wasn't so scary, but um, no, I was prepared. I think I was pretty well prepared. I, I didn't know what to expect, but, uh, you know, I just said, hey, I can hang with anybody. What the heck? We're going to have fun. And uh, that was the other thing. It's always been fun. Um, yes, challenging. Like I say, I, I can't get my little finger to move the way I want it to move right now. And trying to remember uh, so much and taking notes and making sure that you can get your uh, uh that next week when you leave this place that you can remember what your practice lines were Mm -hmm. that you were learning, you know? So that was, uh, that was where the uh, challenge was to make sure I could get absorb the material and then be able to get it and, and uh, re you know, get access to it again when I came home. You know what I'm saying? It was a, that, that part was a challenge, but, uh, there was a very friendly environment, and everybody that was there as a teacher wanted wanted to be there. You know, so the the idea of the, not uh, hiding the way they played the guitar, the folks that were there wanted to show you how they played the guitar. Yeah, Pete Hutlinger was trying to say, "Well, this is the way I played this song, or this is the way I did that." Uh, had the same kind of experience with David Bromberg. Um, he uh, an incredible musician, but at the same time, he was more of a teacher than a musician. Well, you've named five or six, maybe even seven, guitar players who you've been fortunate enough to uh, take lessons with or from. And those are the names of people when I first got back into playing guitar, which would be around the year 2000, maybe 2001. I don't remember the exact year. I had started a subscription to Acoustic Guitar Magazine, and all of those people would be constantly either written about or interviewed or you'd see advertisements with them playing a shove capo or something like that. So what a fun experience for you. Oh, it was, it was, I, uh, I, I had the, uh, it was very close with the manager of the ranch and they had a Saturday evening campfire after the, uh, after the show and he got it started. He says, Frank, I need somebody to help me out. Can you go watch the fire until I get everybody to come down there and, uh, you know, bring a couple guitars. He said, I just don't want to leave it unattended. Can you get down there? And I said, sure. I had my guitar with me. And I was down there. It was the only person by the campfire played a little bit. And, uh, young fella come over and he had one of these composite, I think they're called rain song guitars. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that what they are? Yes. And I'd never seen one before. And he said, here, play my guitar. So I was sitting there, it was just me and him, and I started playing a song I used to play with Willie Barry. Uh, um, um, it was a Bob Dylan song, obviously, but uh, uh, you ain't going nowhere. And I was I was playing that and, and singing to this, just me and this kid, and all of a sudden they're on the other side of the fire, I couldn't see who was there. I heard another guitar playing, and uh, he was playing along with me. He's playing a whole lot better than me. He was going some shit. There's some fills. Uh, that's that. This guy's pretty good. I wonder who that is. And then he was singing harmony. I was playing with David Bromberg. Wow. And it was all by accident. And when when we got up and shook hands and introduced ourselves, and uh, I just walked away saying, "I just played Bob Dylan with David Bromberg at a campfire." 
What a heady now, experience. I, I don't know how it gets any better than that, other than riding motorcycles with Yorma. Yep. I mean, I just don't know. Just don't know. Oh, there was the other one. Fishing with Pete Hutlinger. He, uh, he, uh, I outfished him. We went over to Grandma, Grandma uh, Martin's uh, pond that was next door to Yorma's place, and uh, we did some fly fishing. You know, his first album was a Catch and Release, and ESPN bought up three of his songs to use for their uh, fly fishing shows. Hmm. And he said he never got any money, just cheap rods. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's been a great experience. And I learned to see some people through other sides of their character and personality other than music. And it's, uh, it was, it's been a great experience to do that. And yeah, I've, I've, I've been blessed. I've been truly blessed. Now, how... I had, uh, Go ahead. I had the, I, I took the RV out and I would always park it close to the, uh, studio entrance. And, uh, one evening we had, uh, the entertainment for Saturday night was, uh, a band that Chris Hillman was in. And, uh, at that particular time, I was brewing coffee for the manager of the ranch as he was taking the, letting the people come in and taking their tickets. And I kept the coffee going and I had an open door policy there. I said, John, anytime you want coffee, it's here. I had, uh, at one time I had Yorma and Jack. I had the Jefferson airplane, Pete Sears from the Grateful Dead and, uh, Chris Hillman from the birds standing there drinking coffee in my RV. <laughs> I wanted to take a picture, but you can't be that uncool. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's in my brain, but uh, I, I wish I could have taken a picture. Well, I was going to say you, you did take the picture. Unfortunately, you just <laughs> other than verbally, you can't share it like you would if you had a, you know, a photo in your hand. Oh, geez. And then I came home and I, uh, they said, Frank, you got to start playing out. That was the people that told me that, you, 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 you know, you can come back here as many times as you want, but you have to start playing out. And next thing I know, I was at Tommy Tommy One M at Beans in the Belfry, mm -hmm. and uh, that's how I met you. He says you got to go to Frederick. There's a guy that will make you sound better than you really are. <laughs> <laughs> he said he does amazing things with that mixer, and uh, it wasn't long till I met you. Well, and that I was a '09. Yeah, and I am so glad that I did meet you and that I still know you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Now, I have a question. Since you do play as a duo with, with Bobby Fleury, how did you end up meeting Bobby and starting to perform with him? Amazingly enough, it was because of open mics. We had the open mic at um, the coffee company, and... At some time after that had been around for a while, um, Church Street uh, Pub started to run an open mic the hour after the coffee company stopped. So you could play at the coffee company until the closing and then go down to the Church Street Pub and get a cold one and play an open mic there. Well, the person that was running the open mic, we had entertained in the coffee company and well, he, he couldn't handle the open mic very well. And Michelle, the owner, was looking for somebody to uh, to uh, to run the open mic. And she eventually got to Bobby. And uh, that's how Bobby and I first started playing more frequently together because I knew he was running the open mic and I would go there. And uh, why well, I, I should I should I should take it back a step further. We were playing in the Church Street Pub with Slowburn. It was when we had the band, uh, we had uh, the electric slow burn with a drum and a and a uh, electric bass player. We had Dean Martin and Rick High, and we were there performing for the first time that way. We were we were going to get a job out here in Martinsburg at a juke joint. We wanted an electric band, so we were uh, we were trying it out for the first time at Michelle's, and. Dean was all running around. Hey, hey, Bobby Flurry's here. Where Bobby Flurry's here? You got? Oh man, my God! Bobby Flurry came to watch us. Bobby Flurry's. I said, "Who's Bobby Flurry, and why do I even care?" <laughs> and, uh, and so, fast forward to Bobby Flurry's running the open mic, and uh, I get up there and I'm doing Hesitation Blues, and Bobby got me all set up, and he says, "Hey, let me sit in." And I said, "No, 
I don't think so. I play all. I, I don't need any help. I, I play it all. You know, no, no, let me play with you. And I said, no, I don't think so. Well, he finally convinced me, and uh, I had great reluctance. And I said, okay. And uh, we haven't stopped playing together ever since. I was looking for a bass player, and I found Bobby Fleury. <laughs> well, and if and if I recall reading about Bobby's history, wasn't he hired first as a bass player for a big band, and then quickly became my my recollection is uh, when he when when an agent came and offered him a position, he was uh, um, toying with the idea, and he didn't know if he if he was ready to do it, but it was for Stephen Stills. And uh, when Bobby called him back and said, no, I don't think so, uh, um, or when Bobby called him back, the guy said, well, that job's already gone. But uh, he said, I got another job for you. And that was with Quicksilver Messenger Service and as a bass player. And he was a lead guitar player. He never played bass before. And he walked on stage cold with a world-famous band in New York City and carried it on. Wow. He's a tremendous. He's a tremendous mind, a tremendous talent, and uh, well, I'm sure you've heard his CDs. He does I have. it all himself. Yeah, he, he it is all am- himself. Amazing what he puts together. And uh, he 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 plays he plays and does every instrument. He does all the engineering. He's uh, just well, he's a genius. Uh, he's an absolute genius, and uh, just <laughs> you couldn't imagine the conversations going to and from a gig with with a guy whose mind musically works the way his does. Uh, by by sheer osmosis, I'm a better player. <laughs> well, and he, you know, he seems so unassuming to me when I see him out. Well, that's his personality. Yeah. I mean, indeed, that is that truly is his personality. Uh, he he doesn't have to be the man in front. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's played with everybody that was anybody in San Francisco. He played out there for what twenty seven years or so, and he said out there. When somebody shows up at a at a pub, it's like, oh, well, come on up, Todd, sit in with me. And he said, that's just the nature, and that's the way life is in San Francisco. Unlike, unlike back east here, where that doesn't happen so much. Right. But because of that environment, um, he's played with just a bazillion people that that you know I couldn't even begin to give you a list of people that he's played with. But uh, quite quite an accomplished. Uh, Session musician, road musician, um, and he's the guy they call to do the lead, the lead guitar stuff. So uh, uh, his his uh, primary playing mate out there was Barry Melton. He's uh, renowned known as the Fish, mm-hmm. Country Joe and the Fish. And uh, Bobby still keeps in touch with Barry. In fact, Barry was uh, in Frederick. I should I think I reposted that picture not long ago, just a few years back. Barry and Bobby got to play together um, at uh, I don't know it was some it was some event uh, um, Jimmy Rickard was having and he let him have the stage for a few songs but uh, I, I'm sure Bobby would just love to spend another weekend in San Francisco I would too I, I, he says I could get us a job I'm sure I could get us a job <laughs> oh well so we have we have we have good work right now yeah so what. How did it come about that you, the two of you decided to be a duo? Whose idea was it first? I think it was just mutual agreement. He, uh, he wanted to get together and play with me, and I had just finished the electric band. And we had gotten together through open mics and played. At that time, we... Uh, we tried to do a reincarnation of Slow Burn with uh, Robert and Bill Hall. Mm-hmm. And we did a couple gigs like that and just decided, I don't know if it was a mutual agreement or what, but uh, that only lasted for a couple gigs in the springtime. Bobby went to California to play music, and uh, Dog Blues was back in, you know, me doing my own thing. And uh, I told Bobby that I was playing... Uh, at the bloomery over here in West Virginia. And if he wanted to sit in with me, he was more than welcome. I didn't expect him to show up. And he got back from California, got in his car and come over, not the same day, of course, but uh, came over and uh, sat in. And that was, uh, 
it was so well received and we had so much fun doing it. We said, we should do this more often. And the guy offered us a job. And Frank and Bob was born. And he said, will you come back? Will you come back next month? And we said, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And you'll even pay us? What the heck? That'll be fun. <laughs> and no, that was, uh, that was in 14. That was in 2014. That was in the summer of 2014. We had a couple gigs before Thanksgiving and uh, went into the studio to do demos in the wintertime. And uh, we've been we've been rolling ever since. Now, do you and Bobby get to go into the studio much? I mean, obviously not the past six months, but... No, no, we haven't for a couple years just because of um, family issues and timing and everything like that. We have had very minimal time lately. Uh, the pandemic sure. accepted, but uh, he has just relocated his studio. He... Uh, um, he had to move his studio, uh, and the landlord helped him find another place, and he's now uh, in, a, in a different place in Frederick and getting it all set up. And so we're looking forward to uh, some studio time now, especially in light of maybe not playing as much in the wintertime as we had hoped to. Mm -hmm. We'll definitely be able to do that. And uh, the other thing is, other than our demos, we've never recorded as a duo. So we're discussion is out with that, and I've been... Uh, Taking through my lyrics and my my notebook full of uh, muses and uh, trying to come up with some original because of course that's all he ever does is totally original stuff and uh, that's all we would want to do I believe so looking forward to the possibility of that project that hasn't really been solidified yet but it's uh, it's been talked about so we'll see where that leads us in the in the in the winter in the hot in the cold days to come. Well, this has been a fun conversation. I want to thank you for that. But I, I do have one question for you, and I'm just curious. What gauge strings do you use on your acoustic guitars, and what brand strings? Oh, I use medium, and I use lights. And I use Martin. They used to be called SPs. I think they're now referred to as lifespan. Mm -hmm. They are a coated string. Uh, the the uh, the mediums are thirteen fifty sixes, and the lights I think are uh, are twelve fifty fours. And and I use the uh, the heavier strings on the the guitar I use for the lower tunings. Okay. They'll never come up to a standard tuning. They're thicker. They give better resonance, and that's why I use them. Uh, I use the lighter strings. Uh, on a guitar, I play most because playing three hours with Bobby, your your fingers just fall off. <laughs> <laughs> they feel like cables. Feel like you're pushing cables down. And uh, yeah, I use light gauge strings on on the guitar. I play the majority of the time. Well, Frank, thanks again for joining me on the phone here for the podcast. It's been fun catching up with you. I look forward to whenever, as soon as possible, we can get back out into the world back to what we, hopefully, we can become normal again, or if not completely so, at least enough so that we can get out. And, and as I tell people, you know, I never realized I would miss a handshake and a hug as much as I do. Ah, I'm a hugger. I need my hugs. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. And being I'm able to see there. a smile, for that matter. Indeed. Indeed. So... Well, listen, you have a great rest of the day. I, I look forward to uh, re-listening to this whole conversation because I listen to each show about two or three times before I actually put it on the air. Just I, see. I, I see. I just, well, I hope there's something you can use. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for, for, for joining me on the show. Well, it's been my pleasure. I'm, I'm humbled that you even asked. But, um, thank you very much. Well, I will listen to it numerous times this afternoon and sometime this evening. People don't know when we're actually taping this, but you do. Um, it'll be up in, on, uh, on wispymopmusic.podbean.com later this evening. Now, that Podbean, yeah. do you have... Can I search you out through Podbean? Yeah, I, what I'll do, I will um, text you the link on your cell phone. Okay. And then you'll okay. just pop right up. Okay. And then Very you, good. you should be able to share it on Facebook and, and whatever. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thanks again, Frank. It was
my pleasure, Todd. Good to talk with you. You take good care. All right. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was Frank Davis. Wow, what a fascinating guy. All those, how would you want to call it, cream-of-the-crop guitar players he knows personally and has taken lessons from and played with. And as I mentioned to him during our discussion, those people he named were constantly written up about or interviewed or in advertisements in Acoustic Guitar Magazine when I first got back into the acoustic uh, guitar uh, scene back in the early 2000s. And the only one I came even close to seeing in person was Pete Huttlinger. And unfortunately, the night that he was going to be performing at uh, Rod DC's West Side Cafe, he had the flu. So he was the only one of that particular. He was playing lead guitar with John Pousset Dart. And so they had to leave him at the hotel. So I didn't actually get to see him. So now I know someone who has played with him and taken lessons from him. But anyways, we're going to end the show for now. Listen to a little bit of bumper music, and then we will uh, tag the show later. Thanks again for listening. The Wispy Bump Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Bump Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. Occasionally we go on location, but not very often. It's a little difficult during the pandemic time. All the music on the podcast, if I'm interviewing a songwriter, is played by permission from the songwriter. The music you have heard introducing the show and now is done by Jason Shaw. He has a company called Audio Nautics, A-U-D-I-O-N-A-U-T-I-X.com. And it's royalty-free. You just have to donate some money to them, and you can pull music and use it for your own podcast or whatever you're doing. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with other folks. They can go to wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or they can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.